I'm glad you're here. We're going to jump in and, uh, and discuss um, something that I, I think that, that, that basically discuss the confusing nature of the world, if you will. There, there, there are certain things that um, are very counterintuitive about this world. Meaning to say they're not obvious at first glance, but if you, um, if you learn a little bit of Torah and, um, and you just reflect on just the order of things, because there is an order to things, then everything sort of folds into place and makes a lot of sense. See, I think in general, one of the problems, we're going to talk about various things, um, give examples of what I'm talking about in a moment, but, but just to introduce the idea. You see, I think one of the problems comes from, from how, how people reflect on things. Um, it, let, me, uh, let me explain myself. You see, all, all deep traditions have, have sort of arrived at the same conclusion, which is the, the oneness of all of existence. And, um, you know... The question is, when you reflect on the world and the order of things, wh- where do you begin your, your, your examination from? Do you begin your examination of reality from the fact that it's all emanating from a single unified source, which we'll call Hashem, God? Or do you begin with the radical multiplicity, all of the seeming randomness that engulfs us, and then try to slog through and arrive at a unifying theme from there. So, so it can make the difference between life and death, basically. And it can make the difference between um, tranquility and insanity. <laughs> Where you begin from. The Torah begins... Actually, the Torah begins in a, in a very fascinating way with this level of free choice where to begin one's exploration of reality from. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Torah begins with the letter Bez. Bez, you know, every number has, every letter has a number which it corresponds to. Bez is the second letter of the, uh, of the Hebrew alphabet. And we know that, mystically speaking, Hashem created the entire world out of the letters. So the, the letters are energy wavelengths, if you will. They're, they're sort of certain paradigms. Uh, and they have numerical values as well. So the, letter be- the, the Torah begins with the letter Bez. In other words, the Bez of Breshit, which means with beginnings, God created the world. So, so in other words, the very beginning of the physical reality of the universe begins with this idea of Bez, of two, of duality, which stands for heaven and earth, body and soul, free choice, Good and evil. All of these things are sort of implanted at the beginning of the creation of the world. In other words, once the world has already been created. But don't, don't, don't take it too literally, meaning to say that Bayes just means two. Bayes means more than one. Meaning to say the illusion of multiplicity. So, so the world begins with this idea of randomness, if you will. There's all sorts of forces going on. And, 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 and what is my reaction to it? How do I understand how these things are organized? Are they organized? Okay? Now, here, 
Listen to this now. But by beginning the Torah with the letter Bez, that being the very first letter, God is hinting to us about something very awesome and beautiful, which is behind this letter Bez is the letter Aleph. In other words, behind all of this multiplicity, behind all of this illusion of randomness, is the Aleph, is the unifying force. Remember, Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph stands for one. Aleph stands for God. So, behind this world, and of course permeating, saturating all of existence as well, but behind this world is the oneness of God. So the question is, what is your starting point in terms of understanding reality? Do you begin with the letter Bayes and you try to slog your way through and make sense out of all of the confusion, out of all the duality, out of all the illusion of randomness? Do you begin there and try to work your way through? Or do you begin with the oneness that informs all of existence and then work from there? And understand that that one God made this world, created an order to this world, and we have to understand it. Do you see how the very beginning of the Torah invites this question? So my hearty recommendation is to begin with the letter Aleph. Is to begin with the understanding that there's a God who created everything. You see, one of the things that sort of uh, perplexes me is that um, uh, those who... uh, think about uh, Darwin and those who think about the Big Bang Theory, it seems to me are always starting with the letter Bayes instead of with the letter Aleph. What I mean by that is if you begin with the idea of, say, let's talk about Darwin for a moment. If you begin with the the idea of a single cell, um, a single celled creature, which eventually um, evolves into a human being, Right? If you begin with that single cell, you're beginning with the letter Bayes. Because the letter Aleph asks the question, who made the single cell? (laughs) Who made the ocean that it was floating in? Who made time and space? Right? And the same thing with the Big Bang Theory. If you begin with the notion of an explosion which creates the physical universe... Again, you're beginning with the letter Bayes. Who made that thing which could explode? That's the letter Aleph. So, so we have to begin with the beginning and then understand that everything emanates from there. Now, a couple of thoughts on that. One is, just I always think it's important to explain randomness. Because randomness is really... Um, really something that we live with uh, increasingly today or, 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 or struggle with. And I heard uh, Gedalia Gerfein say something many years ago, and it's, it's never left me. And he said that real randomness, the actual definition of randomness, is if, I don't remember what he held up, a pencil or something like that. He held up a pencil and he said, if this were really random, this would turn into a hot dog and then into a baseball bat and then into a mountain and then into a mass of molecules whose shape couldn't be distinguished. And then keep on changing into various forms that we wouldn't even recognize. That's actual randomness. What we confront, I would suggest, is mysteriousness. 
Mysteriousness is very different from randomness. In other words, there is an order, we just don't always grasp it. And I think in, in Jewish life, the most beautiful um, example of this is the Passover Seder. Seder means order. And anyone who's attended a Passover Seder knows that there doesn't seem to be any order whatsoever to it. You're lifting covers, you're taking things off the table, you're putting things down. You're, t- you know, like, give me a full meal, and then if you want to give me a class afterwards, you know, my, I'm not hungry, I'm listening, but here you, you talk and you talk and you talk, and whether you give someone a, a sprig of parsley and you talk and you talk some more and you're dipping it in salt water, what do I want salt water and my parsley for? You know, and anyway, there is, and yet, the beauty is, it's called Seder. It's called order. And the thought that I heard on this, I, I wish I could tell you from who, someone very great, said that that's this world also. You know, there is an order. It's not immediately apparent, but there is an order. There's an absolute order. Now, <coughs> I want to tie this in with the Parsha. And I also want to tie this in further with the beginning of the Torah itself. But let's go to the Parsha for a moment. Which be, it's Parsha's told us. And, um, and there's an amazing, there's an amazing chapter in the Torah which deals with the birth of Yaakov, Jacob, and Esau, Esau, twins, and their birth order. Because seemingly, and then the selling of the birthright. Seemingly, and the Torah attests to this, Esav is born first. He's the first one out of the womb. He's the firstborn. No one argues that. Well, he's not the firstborn. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's the first one out of the womb. That's for sure. So seemingly, by conventional definitions, he is the firstborn. Okay. And then Yaakov is holding on to his heel. That in itself is worthy of uh, great exploration. But anyway, let's, let's, uh, let's keep on going. Yaakov is, is then born. And, and what happens? We know that, that the Jewish people are called the firstborn. And not only that, but Jacob secures the, the, the right, the official contractual right to be the firstborn. He purchases it from Asaph, who you know, treats it with contempt and doesn't want it. So Jacob, you know, arranges for uh, Esau to give it to him. And then, of course, the great confirmation that all of this was from heaven is that Yitzchak, Isaac, gives Jacob the blessing of the firstborn. Now, seemingly that's through, you know, kind of like an odd kind of like unfolding of events. But as soon as Yitzchak Isaac gives it to him, he realizes that this is from heaven, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. And then afterwards, if you look in the Torah itself, it says it explicitly, after all of these events are over, Isaac then gives it willingly and knowingly to Jacob again. So, so Jacob is the firstborn, and this is confirmed. Now, this is all leading up to this Rashi that, that I want to tell you. Which is, Rashi shows you how even... The initial circumstances of the birth are such that Jacob really is the firstborn. And, um, 
again, just to, just to clarify what we're talking about right now, even though we're trying to explain the order of the birth and everything like that, what I'm really trying to do is bring this as an example of how what we see with our eyes and everything like that isn't necessarily what's going on. And how we have to tap into the oneness that informs all things that's, 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 that's working on a deeper level. Okay, so all of this about the firstborn is just coming to explain that. Okay, so what Rashi does is he gives a very beautiful, very simple way of understanding how Jacob, even in the womb, was the firstborn. And he says the following. He says, imagine a narrow tube. And he invites everyone to try this on their own, which is interesting because I've never seen that in Rashi before. He goes, try it out, you know. So he says, take a narrow tube and put in one rock first and then put in a second rock or a pebble, whatever it is, second. Now pour them out. The one that went in second is the one that's going to come out first. Does everyone hear that? Right? Take a narrow tube. You put one pebble in first and another pebble in second. When you pour them out, the one that went in second into the tube is going to come out first. And he says that that was the circumstances of the birth of Jacob and Asaph. That Yaakov Avinu was conceived first. He was the first one who was conceived. And Asaph was conceived second. And the proof that Asaph was conceived second is that he came out first. Okay? So you see, even amidst the circumstances of their conception of the actual birth, Yaakov Avinu was first. Okay. So, so everything isn't as it appears just to the eyes. Everything isn't just as it appears to the eyes. And you see, this is one of the big um, sort of forks in the road between what the world calls rationalists and what the world calls, say, mystics. Okay? And the mystics will rail against the rationalists and call them blockheads. (laughs) And the rationalists will rail against the mystics and call them superstitious. Right? So there's sort of this war going on between these two encampments. And yet, you'll see that the area where they diverge is actually much, much slimmer, much, much razor fine than appears at first glance. Because, I'll give you a couple of examples. The best example that I heard is that, um, you see... Can you see radio waves? Can you see radio waves? You can't see radio waves. Are they out there? Are they surrounding us? A hundred percent. Is that the height of science? Radio waves? A hundred percent. So what do you need to do? You need to actually turn on your radio in order to receive the radio waves. And then you can hear them. Right? And so, the reason why I like that and why I think that's such a compelling example is because that's all science. It's all science. And yet, what is it dealing with? That which is unseen by the eye. So, all of a sudden, the idea that if I can't see it, 
it's not true or it doesn't make sense or it's not rational, you see that science itself doesn't believe that. Science is a great believer, ironically, or a great, you know, holder of that which is completely unseen by the eye. So, so where, where these two paths diverge is not as, as obvious or apparent. You know, um, I read that when the Pasteurs uh, originally started um, sort of like uh, homogenizing things, Meaning, or uh, pasteurizing, rather, pasteurizing things, boiling things, that they were, um, they were derided. Because people said, how can there be anything in this milk or something like that that can make us become sick? I can't see it with my eye. And yet when they showed with microscopes that you actually can see certain things, and those things get killed when you boil the milk and then it makes it safe for everyone, all of a sudden that was a big breakthrough in people's consciousness. Okay. Anyway, let's go further. So, so the point is, is that Jacob is the firstborn. And yet that's not what our experience was in the moment. And yet that was the reality. Now, I want to point your attention to something. The first three words of the Torah itself, because the Torah is the blueprint of all of reality. And we need the Torah to understand what is going on. And you see something, I think, that's very much in keeping with the theme that we've been developing. So, listen to the last letter of the first three words, okay? Breshis, Taf, Bara, Aleph, Elohim, Mem. Okay, that means that in, with beginnings, God created the world. Alright, so it's talking about the creation of the world itself. Now, the last three letters... Tuf for Breshis, Aleph for Bara, and Mem for Elohim spell out the word Emes, which means truth. Now, what's so interesting to me about this is that spell, it's spelled out of order. <laughs> because one of the hallmarks of the word truth is that Emes, Aleph, Mem, Tuf, is the first letter of the Torah. Mem is the middle letter, I mean the first letter of the Aleph base, the alphabet. Mem is the middle letter of the alphabet. And Tuf is the last letter of the, uh, of the alphabet. Which is that for something to achieve the status of truth, it must be true throughout. The beginning, middle, and end. You know, I saw like uh, an advertisement for a TV show that just came and went. It was the first one canceled this season. But there was something so, uh, so terrible, uh, I mean, so, like, whatever, whatever the word is, not nice, let's say, about the, uh, the, the ad line. It was a guy speaking to a woman, right? And the, the line of dialogue was, um, um, I've, I always tell you the truth, except for that one night, right? And it's sort of like... I, think I might be paraphrasing, but that was the idea. Anyway, well, that's not always telling the truth, is it? I mean, that's sort of like, and I don't even know what the story was, but the mind races when you hear something like that, right? So it's sort of like, that doesn't count as always telling the truth. I'm sorry. In fact, um, I heard a, a quote in the name of Bismarck, who is the, uh, the great German nationalist. I think, uh, I don't know, it was the 1700s, 1800s, whatever it was, 
But he sort of organized all the little German principalities into the, the nation as we know it today of, of Germany. And uh, he, he had a quote which I thought was also just totally evil, which was, um, I always tell the truth because, because when I don't, I want you to believe me. <laughs> right? Again, that's like, it's not nice. The essence of truth is that it's always true and that it's forever true. Okay? And you see that reflected in the letters. Beginning, middle, and end. There's a consistency. There's an eternality to the nature of the truth. Okay, that being the case, that being the case, why, so it it makes sense that the first three letters, uh, the first three words of the Torah are hinting at this word, emes, truth. Because the Torah is introducing itself as the truth. And yet, it's also, I believe, telling us something much deeper. Which is, it's also telling us how truth manifests itself in this world. In other words, the appearance of truth is not always going to be so obvious. It's not always going to be so obvious. And that's why I think the word emet, truth, is spelled out of order. In other words, it's there, it's testimony from God that the Torah is true and that the world is true and everything like that, and yet it's also hinting to us that that truth is not going to just be able to be perceived with the naked eye. Just like we understand that Jacob was the first who was conceived and who was the firstborn, and yet the first one out of the womb was Asaph. And yet we understand on a deeper level that wasn't the truth. So, so this is a big foundation. And again, are we beginning our exploration of reality and understanding this world and understanding our lives from the gateway of the letter base, multiplicity, and then trying to arrive at some sort of theme and understanding? Or do we begin with the letter Aleph and go from there? To understand that oneness informs all of reality. And then we try to grasp the order as it emanates from the oneness which is the preferred method. Now, I want to share something else. Because we know that um, there's something very deep. There's something very deep about... um, They're called letters of exchanges. And um, one of the systems that we've looked at uh, before is this this idea called Atbash. And... What Atbash, this is um, something that the Gomorrah tells us about in Masechet uh, Shabbos, Daf Kuf Dalit, which in itself, Kuf and Dalit, is an Atbash. That's where Atbash is explained on a page which itself is an Atbash. What it does is it takes the first 11 letters, there are 22 letters in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew alphabet, it takes the first 11 letters of the Aleph Beis and the next 11 letters and it puts one row under the other row. And it arranges it sort of like in a, uh, in a horseshoe format. So in other words, you begin with the letter Aleph, and then you hook around so that, um, so that underneath the Aleph is the letter Taf. So the first letter and the last letter correspond. And then Bash, At Bash, that's where At comes from. Aleph, Taf, Bez, Shin, Gimel, 
Reish. And you've got this whole row. And any, in a, in a word, in a Torah word, any one of these letters can be exchanged. Or the entire word can be exchanged. You can exchange the entire word and take the gematria of the atbash of that word, for instance. There's all sorts of levels of understanding of the Torah that become revealed. And you really get a, a sense of the infinity of the Torah when you realize how many different levels it's operating on simultaneously. So, what's interesting, what I'd like to suggest, is the letter Taf, the last letter of the Aleph base, of the alphabet, in Atbash, is the letter Aleph. So there's, there's this very amazing correlation between ends and beginnings. You know, we say, there's a, an English expression, I'll paraphrase it, which is that for every door that closes, another one opens. Right? Like, endings aren't really endings. Endings are invitations to other openings. And in fact, one of the things that I was exploring this, this Shabbos was the fact that this Parsha Toldos begins with the letter Tuf and ends with the letter Tuf. And the Parsha itself, the narrative of the Parsha itself, begins with an ending and ends with an ending. Remember, Tuf is the last letter of the Aleph base. What's the ending that Toldos begins with? The end of the era of Abraham Avinu. And what's the ending that it ends with? Yaakov Avinu being essentially exiled from his home. It's the end of the era of Yaakov being with his parents, Yitzchak and Rivka. So there are two endings that correlate with the two tafs of Toldos, beginning and ending the, the word. And yet, what is the nature of tzaddikim? Is that they understand that that, so to speak, the atbash of taf is olive. That in, in the ending, there's a beginning. So the, the parsha begins with the beginning of the reign of Yitzchak. In other, in other words, Yitzchak understands that an era has ended. My holy father Avraham is nifter, he's in Shemayim. But now it's time for me to begin. So that taf becomes an olive. And for Yaakov Avinu, that taf being exiled from his home, running from his life, that ending segues into a beginning. That crisis point becomes an opportunity. And he runs to the yeshiva of shame and Aver, and he learns Torah for 14 years straight. So an amazing, an amazing beginning opens up from this ending. The top turning into an olive. So, so let me go deeper into this point. The word brachis I would like to suggest that the word Breshis itself is a microcosm of the entire history of the world. In other words, contained within the word Breshis is the entire history of all of creation until Mashiach comes. And I'd like to suggest that you see this primarily in the letter Taf, that Breshis ends with the letter Taf. In other words, the word beginning ends with the letter Taf. That the beginning goes and concludes a process. That a process is being hinted at. You know, one of the things that I try to emphasize all of the time, <clears throat> it's maybe the main idea I've tried to communicate, or one of them certainly, is that this world hasn't been finished yet. We're still in the process of creation. 
And this is such an important thing for us to understand. I, I, I believe that we can't understand our lives without knowing this, or the world that we live in without understanding this. And certainly we can't grasp the goodness of God without understanding this. You see, the problem that people have, and I'm talking about thinking people, good people, the problem that they have, that this teaching answers on the deepest way, is the following. They say, if God is good, why is there so much injustice in the world? If God is good, why is there so much injustice? So, they say, maybe God isn't good. So, chas v'shalom. You can't say that. That goes against every, every foundation of Torah. And in fact, you know, I've shared this with a couple of people, and I myself have asked this question. Where do you see, actually, that God is good? <laughs> right? That's a very, you know, as long as we're going to be on this point, let's, let's make sure that we understand that, that the Torah itself tells us that God is good. Okay? And there are a, there are a couple of places, there are actually several places where, where we see it, but just so you have it for your own uh, Jewish uh, literacy, as they say. Um, you know, in the in in uh, in Ashrei. So let me just. Uh, if you can hand me a, a sitter so I can read it uh, directly. In Ashrei, under the uh, letter Tet, do you have the? Uh, is there the art scroll sitter there? You know, it's on the other bookshelf mirror. If you go over there, you, you can grab it. Um, in Ashrei, it goes through all of the letters one by one, and when it gets up to the letter Tet. It says, it talks about the goodness of God. Because Tet is the first letter of the word Tov. And so, it says the following. It says, Tov Adonai Lekol Verachamav Al Komasav. Adonai is good to all. His mercy are on all of his works. So here you have, and this is comes from the standpoint of prophecy. So it's God speaking through the mouth of David HaMelech. And here you have an unambiguous statement of God's goodness. Hashem is good to all. Period. End. Now, you have another statement, which is, um, which, which, is, which is beautiful, also from the Psalms. David HaMelech says, Taste and see that God is good. And I love that. I love that because, you know, every once in a while we talk about it. Taste and see that God is good. Think about it for a moment. Could this world have been the same world without kumquats or without schnauzers? Right? If you think about it, without, without the color mauve, <laughs> right? It would have been the same world. Pretty much the same world. Kiwis, Right? But it's an aspect of God's goodness. I mean, God could have made this world in black and white, literally. There could be no pigmentation, no, no colors of anything in this world. There could have been one food that tasted horrible, and he could have said, okay, now keep the Torah. <laughs> Here's your black and white food, your world. Here's your food. Or how about why black and white? How about just utter darkness? You sit in utter darkness with one type of food which tastes horrible and God says, keep the Torah. I mean, when you think about the world that we live in, which is like, just as colors upon colors, beauty, 
huge outpourings of beauty everywhere. Flavors. Just like cavalcades of flavors. Cornucopias of, of, of varieties of nature, of pets, of animals. You know, all of that variety is testimony to the goodness of God. Because He absolutely didn't have to do it. He absolutely did not have to do it. And it shows on His goodness. Plus, if you look at the beginning of Breshis, it says, after every aspect of creation, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good. So for sure, for sure God is good. But someone has a question. They say, but I see injustice in the world, so, so how can you say God is good? So then they, they want to become a defender of God. So they say, okay, so God is good. Ah, but there's evil. You know why there's evil? Because he's not strong enough. He's not all-powerful. Because if he were all-powerful, then he'd be able to stop the bad. Absolutely, we can't say that either. One thousand percent, we cannot say that either. God is omnipotent. God can do anything at any moment, at any time. Nothing stops God from fulfilling what he wants to do. Nothing. So we see that he's good, and we see that he's all-powerful. Ah, so then we return back to the original question. So then why is the world so messed up? Right? And the answer is, it's not done yet. It's not finished yet. And not only is it not finished yet, but that's what we're here for. That's what we're doing here. It's not a coincidence. Oh, man, you had to invite me to the ball game on the day that it's pouring rain? How did those two things happen? That's not it. It's not a coincidence that we're here and the world's not done here. We're here because the world's not done yet. Those two things are hand in glove. That's what it is. That's what we're here for, to finish the world. To be partners with God in terms of perfecting creation. That's what the Torah is. That's what the mitzvahs are. That's what we're doing. Okay. So now, the reason why I went into that whole thing is because the word breishis is means with beginnings, or as it's popularly translated, that, here, how does it say? In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth. Do you hear that the word, that there's a process, an ongoing process, in the tense of that word? With beginnings. In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth. You see, we're still in the middle of it. And that's the verb tense of the word brachis. So now, at the end of brachis is the letter tough, which tells us that this process which is going on right now is going to end. It's going to come to its full completion. That's what the tough at the end of brachis is telling us. We're driving toward a conclusion, which is, of course, the messianic era the perfection of the world, the finishing of the world. And that's the tough of Breshis. Now listen to this. In terms of Atbash, in terms of Atbash, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, one of the top rabbis in the world, explained the philosophy of Atbash in the, in the following way. He says, you see, there's a speaker and there's a listener. Okay? When the speaker finishes speaking, then the listener understands what the speaker has to say. 
Okay? I'll give you an example. If you are giving someone, say, the recipe to something, until they finish the recipe or the ingredients, you don't know how to make the thing. Right? So you have to let them get to the end, and then the recipe has been revealed. So the normal order that the Torah is written in is revelation. It's revelation. When the speaker is finished speaking, the truth has been revealed. Okay? Fine. But now, the listener has to process the words of the speaker. And now the next section kicks in, which is perception. First comes revelation, then comes perception. Perception is the listener working through all of the words of the speaker. So now let me tell you how this is explaining Atbash. Revelation is Aleph through Taf. Right? That's the speaker speaking. He starts at the beginning and he gets to the end. And that which he chooses to reveal has now been revealed. The listener hears the whole thing and goes from Taf through Aleph. Because the listener processes the words and returns back to the beginning. And that's perception. Okay? So now listen to this. Breshis, what did we say? The world isn't finished yet. When are we going to see the full, the full goodness of God? When Mashiach comes and the world is perfected. When creation is finished, the full goodness of God, in, in the dimension that we're in right now, will have been revealed. So, we have to get to the end of Breshis. We have to get to the end of the process of creation. When we reach the letter Taf, that which God is revealing will have been revealed. And then, what happens? We will then see, then perception kicks in. The Taf becomes an Aleph. And then we'll be able to see the fully revealed oneness of God. Right? Because at that point, when creation is finished, when we get to the top of Breshis, then perception begins. Because the revelation will be complete at that point. And then we can begin to perceive the oneness of God. So again, as much as Breish, the letter Bays represents multiplicity, the full kind of like riot of, mu- of multiplicity is really contained in the letter Taf, because that's the last letter of the, of, of the olive base. That's the number 400. When Esav comes to attack and wipe out Yaakov, he comes with 400 men. In other words, that's the whole cavalcade of the illusion of randomness, right? So that's the, that's the end but at that point, what happens? Esau kisses Yaakov. Yaakov emerges triumphant. So, at the conclusion of the tough, at the conclusion of the 400, at the conclusion of Breshis, at the end of all the ends, comes the beginning. And we're capable, or the, 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 the revelation of the oneness that informs everything. Now, we said that the first three letters of the Torah spells out the, the, the word truth. The last letters of them, right? 
And it begins with Breshis, with the letter Tav. But, if we tap into the Torah, we can already be hip, because we know the end of the story. You know, people, like, there are a lot of people who, they get a book, and the first thing they do is they open to the last page and they read the end. Do you know people like this? There are people like this. That's a, they don't want surprises. <laughs> they want to go right to the end, figure out where this thing is going. We know where this is going! We know where this is going. We know where the world is going. We know. We know. You know, I, I, I tell you, I, I, I read in this uh, week's New York Times, I shared it yesterday, something awesome. It was in Thomas Friedman's column. Something awesome. Listen to this. Two, two facts. One, the top of Mount Everest, the top of Mount Everest has been wired for Wi-Fi. Okay? Number two, in India today, this is 2010 right now, in India today, 15 million people a month are signing on for cell phones. So, globalization, the complete connectivity of the entire world, it's happening in front of our eyes. It's happening in front of our eyes. We know the end of this story. Because everything, all of the forces, technologically, socially, all of the forces are driving toward oneness. And the oneness is going to be revealed. This is what we've been saying since the very, very beginning. This is what we've been saying as the Jewish people to the entire world since the beginning. There's one God. There's one God. There's only one power in this world. That's all there is. is. That's all there is. And that's what's being revealed right now. And it's happening in front of our eyes. You know, let me just just conclude just, just with, with two quick things. It's one of my favorite stories. When, when, my, when my first child was born, um, when, 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 someone, when, when someone is a brand new baby, for whatever reason, I mean, I guess this mirrors our life in this world, right? They physically can't see that far in front of them. They can see just, I don't know what it is, maybe, I don't know, a few inches in front of them. And that's it. They can't see further than that. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny because it, it, it does mirror our, our lives as adults in this world. We begin by thinking that, we, that that which we see with our eyes is, is what's real. And yet, as we grow, we realize that we have to see beyond what the physical eye can grasp as we get older. So, that's all contained within a baby's experience. So, my son was crying, he's crying, he's crying, and you know, especially with your first kid, you know, you can't distinguish between all the different types of cries. There are different types of cries. There's the cry, I'm just cranky, and there's the cry, you know, I need you right now, you know, so every cry in the beginning seems like the, I need you right now, you know, it seems like there's an emergency, and then you realize, okay, some are emergency cries, some are not emergency cries, whatever it is, but I was still in the stage where everything was an emergency cry, and, um, and I'm hearing this cry, and I figure, ah, he's hungry, he needs some milk. So, so I, I was right. Got to get him some milk. 
So I say to him, and he's just, I don't know how many days old. I said, okay, I'm getting you some milk. I'm getting you some milk. And I'm trying to hurry and put together the bottle and the formula, whatever it is. And he's crying, crying, crying. And I'm thinking, I'm getting you some milk. I'm, I'm, I'm getting it for you, right? And then I, I, I have the milk. And I'm holding him. And there's the bottle, maybe, maybe two feet from his mouth. It's right there. That which he wants is right there. And he's still crying, 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 crying. And then I, I put it in his mouth. Ah, he stops crying. And uh, it hit me that this is us. That there it was, that which he wanted so badly was right in front of his face. And he didn't have the eyes to see it. And it hit me that God, you know, he's preparing our salvation right in front of our eyes. And we don't have the eyes to see it. You know, let's say a, a person is out of work, right? Needs a job. So there could be, there's a conversation going on right now, say. One person saying to the other, hey, yeah, okay. So they shake hands and they close the deal and everything like that. And it's sort of like, okay, great. Now we're going to need a, a guy to run this department, right? You can't hear that. You don't even know that that's going on. But that's going to end up with, say, you getting that position, so, in other words, the forces of redemption are going on right in front of you, so to speak, but we don't have access to them. And they're unfolding right in front of us and we don't have access to them. But we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story of creation. Which means even though, even though, Breshis Baralokim, even though the first Three words. The word emes is scrambled. Truth, as it appears to the naked eye, is scrambled in front of us. Even though that's the case, it's true. We know the end. Breshis ends with a tough. Atbash, that's the letter Aleph. We can see right now what the end is. We can see the manifestation of God's oneness right now. Even before the end. Even before the end, by looking into the world and understanding that there's a oneness that informs everything. And I'll just conclude with one thought, just one of my favorite thoughts. I go back to it all the time. I heard it from Rabbi Blech, which is, why do we close our eyes during Shema? Why are we covering our eyes during Shema when we declare the oneness of God? So that our eyes shouldn't be fooled. Because all we see is different forces in front of our faces. We cover that up. We close our eyes. In order to tap into the oneness that informs everything. And that's what it is. That's reality. That's reality. And Hashem should bless us that we should live with that. We should live with that before it's openly revealed. And that we should be able to achieve that tranquility and that serenity right now. And we should also be able to see all the salvations that God has been preparing for us since the beginning of time revealed openly for all of us. Yeah.